0: Housing is sort of one of the most important domestic policy issues that we face, right? Is is it the intersection of so many of our most pressing challenges, from racial justice to carbon emissions um, and economic mobility?
1: Hi, Ioana. Hey, Kat. So today you're having a conversation with your colleague Ingrid Gould Ellen, and. Um, Her work was something that our students discovered when they um, wanted to figure out what is some of the best evidence available on how to address housing insecurity. So tell us more about what Ingrid
2: focuses on. So, you know, during the pandemic, we've really seen how people were concerned about housing insecurity because of the economic shocks we've seen. And we discussed that in prior episodes, how people have lost income and therefore some people might not be able to pay rent and could become homeless. So I think, you know, the pandemic really made us think more about this issue of housing insecurity, that a lot of people just can't afford rent, are going to fall behind and sometimes, you know, lose any sort of uh, stable housing and become homeless in the most extreme cases. So to address that, the topic of the day is, you know, looking at a policy which is called housing vouchers. And essentially, this is going to uh, give low-income people vouchers that they can use to pay rent. So it's it's financial help for low-income people so that they can use it uh, to pay rents.
1: Well, one of the reasons this became particularly important during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is not only were more people um, out of work and and at the point of of not being sure whether they could meet their rent or or mortgage, but also a lot of the um, nonprofit organizations that uh, provide emergency housing um, were Organizations that had sort of congregate housing, where lots of people were being housed together in a shelter or something else, and for public health reasons, they weren't able to do that. And so um, looking at policies like housing vouchers became even more important, given what we were seeing during the pandemic. So let's see what we learned from your conversation with Ingrid.
2: So today, I'm glad to welcome to the Just Economics podcast, uh, Ingrid Gould-Ellen. And Ingrid is a professor of urban policy and planning at New York University Wagner School and the faculty director for the Furman Center for Real Estate and Urban Policy. Well, as you can deduce right from her credentials, she is an expert on housing and urban policy, and she has written a number of papers about the Housing Choice Voucher Program in particular. And so precisely today, we're going to discuss a review paper on housing vouchers that Ingrid has published in 2020 in Regional Science and Urban Economics. So welcome to the show, Ingrid. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so, you know, when you go in the streets of any big city, you usually see homeless people uh, around, and that's been a problem in many cities. And then even beyond that, we also know during the pandemic, there was a big concern about people not being able to pay rent. They were, you know, so close to being penniless that they couldn't pay rent. So clearly, housing affordability is an issue in the U.S., but really, how big of an issue is it? Yeah, so... I mean, I, if I can back up for a second, I think that I would argue that housing is sort of
0: one of the most important domestic policy issues that we face. Right? Is, is at the intersection of so many of our most pressing challenges, from racial justice to carbon emissions um, and economic mobility. Um, you know, if you look back at the Great Recession, that um, it really was, um, you know, the housing sector sort of for took sure. down the entire economy, right? And and there's there's research now that suggests that um, th- that uh, make housing more expensive and desirable cities actually are a significant drag on economic growth. Uh, you know, buildings are also a, um, you know, a major source of, of carbon emissions. And, and then mm-hmm. closer to, to my research is, um, and, it, you know, there's also growing research evidence that suggests that housing and neighborhood environments are a critical foundation for economic mobility, that where children Grow up, um, mm-hmm. you know, really critically matters in shaping their in shaping their life outcomes. And but because of the legacy of segregation and and continued barriers, not everyone has access to the same homes and to the same neighborhoods. And and at the extreme, as you said, right, there there are many lower income households that experience spells when where they have no stable place to live at all and and right
2: so before you tell us more about yeah. that i guess you wanted yeah. to point out that hey it's not just about low-income people who can't afford housing housing right. is this big thing in our economy exactly. it affects growth it has the relationship with climate change so you know it's a yeah. much bigger picture issue and of course affordability and homelessness is one of the issues so yeah why don't you say more about that
0: yeah, well, and I will say, right, we've seen this sort of secular decline in, in affordability over the last several decades um, that, that's really kind of striking, right, you, um, that um, many, many more people sorry, are, are um, paying what we consider uh, excessive housing burdens. I mean, they're paying sort of more than 30 percent of their of their income on rent. Um, and so Good, because I was gonna. I was yeah, gonna they, ask, it, how do you it, define affordability? That. Like, yeah, what is affordable?
2: Kind of, so, okay, thirty percent no, of
0: income. Yeah, I, I mean that's just a it, it. It's sort of an arbitrary threshold, but it's one that's commonly used. And just to give you a sense, I think in 1970, about a quarter, less than I think a quarter, something like 24 percent of of renter households paid more than 30 percent of their income on rent or sort of a rent burdened. And today, that's just about half. Right? Wow. So That's like a huge change. Right. Um, and, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, homelessness is is um, difficult to measure. And, and so the numbers are about, you know, the best estimates suggest maybe like, you know, um, that uh, maybe a, a million and a half people or something are um, experiencing homelessness over the course of a year. And, and, you know, there are whole sorts of reasons why um, people wind up homeless um, you know often it's sort of the cause it's, it's a result of some kind of um, individual financial shock that they've experienced um, and um, but one but what you see is that sort of those financial shocks are more likely to lead to homelessness in um, housing markets where there are that are where you know um, rental housing is more expensive where there are fewer housing units available where regulations right. land use regulations mm-hmm. are, are tighter. So, um, so that's so critical.
2: A, you know, yeah. it's an interaction between the individual and the social exactly. and economic condition. Somebody's got a crisis and then, that's right. you know, what are the conditions? Can they catch themselves? That's right.
0: That's right. In some markets, there's sort of, you know, more of a, of a cushion. It's sort of easier to get back on your feet. But, right. um, but increasingly, you know, again, as we've seen these numbers of declining affordability, it also means that renters have, have, had little ability, especially lower income renters, to, to save, right? right? To save for the rainy day and to be able to buffer those, those financial shocks exactly. that are exactly. kind of
2: inevitable. Mm-hmm. So precisely, you know, that means maybe we need to do something policy-wise and housing choice vouchers is one of the mm-hmm. policy instruments that has been used to help yep. with this affordability issue. So can you tell us more about what precisely they are and how they work?
0: Yes, so I mean, housing choice vouchers are. I mean, it's a it's a federal rental. It's it's the largest federal rental assistance program um, that subsidizes the the rents of low income households. In particular, basically households that um, receive a voucher are given sort of a limited um, amount of time in which they can find a, a housing unit on the private market. Um, usually, sort of sixty days or more, depending on the housing authority, and um, and they have to find a unit that both passes housing quality standards where the landlord is willing to, to rent to them to a, to um, a voucher holder and where the rent is below kind of a local ceiling, a ceiling rent that's that, mm-hmm. that's set locally. And, and the subsidy generally, it's a little bit more complicated, um, but the subsidy basically covers, you know, the difference between about 30% of a participant's income and then, and then the sort of a fair market rent that's again set mm-hmm. at a, at a local level. Um, there so essentially
2: are, just to clarify yeah. since we define affordability as 30% I mean that's just a rule of thumb that people use yeah. what the program does is ensure that people don't get into an unaffordable situation by covering that Yeah
0: it you know, does above it, it, yeah 30% I mean, it's a little like i said you actually can over time stay voucher holders can stay in in units um uh, where they are paying more than thirty percent of the as the rent goes up, um,
2: mm-hmm. their
0: income. So you do see, but but generally, it does help to sort of um, to to limit those. Rent you know, prices. it's just
2: to connect the dot, right? Yeah, no, right absolutely, absolutely affordability and, and the the program design right. here, how the policy is constructed. That's right. And so, and, um, is this is this varying by state, or is this like a one size fit all? Uh, no,
0: I mean, it's a, it's a federal program. It doesn't vary by state. There, there is, um, there are differences across metropolitan areas and across housing authorities in particular, and sort of the details of how the voucher mm-hmm. program is implemented. Maybe one of the, the biggest program, uh, b- biggest sort of programmatic differences across housing authorities is, um, the payment standards. Mm-hmm. So, um, Most PHAs use sort of metropolitan area wide payment standards. And so regardless of whether you're, you're trying to find a unit in a high rent neighborhood or a low rent neighborhood, the the rent ceiling is the same or the sort of ceiling on your subsidy, but there are a number a growing number of housing authorities that now use zip code level payment standards. So if you go to a higher rent neighborhood, you get a, you get a higher subsidy. Um, And that's, that's, you know, the, the aim is to try to reduce the, the concentration of voucher holders in, in very low income neighborhoods.
2: Right, because, you know, there's always variation in the rents between different areas of a city. That's so here exactly in Philadelphia, right. Center City is very expensive relative to, you know, say, North Philadelphia. And so what happens is that if you have the same you know, rent that's going to be covered by the whole city, people can't afford to take their housing voucher to, say, Santa City. Whereas if it's by zip code, they at least have a chance. We'll talk about other obstacles that they may face, but financially, they, at financially, least have, a they have a chance right. to uh, get an apartment in a nicer uh, area of, right. uh, of town. That's right. So now, now, how about you said about 50% of households? You know might have unaffordable rents today meaning more than 30 percent of their budget that goes to rent so you know what is the eligibility criteria in other terms in order to get help from the government with these housing vouchers how poor do you have to be you know to even qualify well so technically you have to have income below 80 percent of the
0: local area median income which is Mm -hmm. set at a metropolitan area level um but virtually all recipients, I want to say over ninety five percent of voucher recipients have incomes below fifty percent
1: mm-hmm. of their
0: local area median and and about seventy five percent, about three and four earn less than thirty percent of the area median income, which is like roughly, I mean, just to translate this, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's kind of roughly equivalent to the poverty line in most mm-hmm. areas. So you're talking about these are poor households.
2: That's 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 good to know. So precisely, these are those who are likely most at risk to yes. face financial hardship uh, due to housing. So, you know, this segues nicely into, exactly. well, does this work? So how effective yeah. are these vouchers yeah. as uh, addressing homelessness and just more generally inability to pay rent or find a, a decent housing yeah. unit?
0: I mean, the short answer is that they're very effective. Um, you know, there, there are some very good... Uh, a, a set of very good um, rigorous experimental studies that show that um, that people who are randomly selected to, to receive vouchers um, spend significantly less on rent. Um, they uh, they face significantly lower rent, rent burdens. One study in Chicago um, found that the rent burdens went from the sort of average rent burden went from um, from uh, like 60% of the, the households before they got their voucher were spending 60% of their income on rent. And then after that, that fell to sort of 27% of income. on Wow, rent. that's so, a huge effect. Yeah, big difference. And, and, um, you know, one study also shows that um, vouchers also significantly reduce the probability of of, of becoming homeless. So, um, you know, vouchers reduce both the pop and, and, and they also reduce the probability of of living in crowded housing, right, mm-hmm. um, or doubling up with other families. Um, and uh, I think they reduced the probability of of um, of having been homeless or doubled up by, like, you know, nearly 20%. That's what the study mm-hmm. found. Mm-hmm. So, significant- so that is
2: – yeah, that is just what you would expect. As we talked about the fact that yeah. any financial shock is so much harder to cushion when you're a low-income individual, and what could happen to you is that you become homeless. Since you know, housing is a big expense for many that's people. Right. So when yeah. you're low enough income, you just can't afford housing. And so this seems like these housing vouchers, you know, really help people. And so that's one policy solution. But you know, there's other policies that have been addressed that trying to help uh, people afford housing. This include yeah. public housing, which means we're going to directly provide housing. We're not giving you a voucher that you can take to the market and rent something, but the government straight up provides housing. Or, frankly, the other thing you could do is instead of the voucher, which is restricting to housing, you can give a broader cash benefit, which we have some mm-hmm. cash benefits. Um, and that could potentially also be uh, useful as far as increasing people's abilities to afford housing. So how would you compare housing vouchers versus either public housing or cash benefits more broadly?
0: Yeah. So that's a great question and a really important one from a policy perspective. I, I will be honest that I, I don't think we have um, the most rigorous evidence that could sort of mm-hmm. directly answer it. I, I, I will say a little bit about it. So, so I'm going to speculate a little bit, but just in terms mm-hmm. of Public housing, I mean, I think we, we don't have the same kind of, um, um, you know, randomized controlled trials of the impact of public housing, but um, public housing, similar to to the voucher program does, um, but, you know, uh, the renters, recipients only pay 30% of their income on rent, um, and it's a stable place to live. So I would expect that you would see similar kind of reductions in um in the risk of homelessness and in, in increases in affordability, there's sort of, you know, there's, there's potentially a downside to place-based subsidized housing and that, that the households um, don't have as much choice and in, mm-hmm. in, in where they want to live. They often end up living in, in um, very high poverty environments and, and neighborhoods. So um and there's also, you know, there's there's a cost-effectiveness question from the standpoint of the government that generally the research shows that giving that vouchers are more cost-effective than place-based subsidized housing. So, mm-hmm. so that's on that side. Then I think, you know, in some ways, um, I mean, I think this uh, really, I mean, it's a really interesting question to sort of compare vouchers to cash transfers. And there we really have no research. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is there is really uh, there's some very uh, there's one really um, compelling study out of Chicago that that showed that modest cash transfers um, uh, that uh, that people who were um, you know facing emergency housing crises um, can really help to to uh, can really help. People facing emergencies um, stay in their homes over time, mm-hmm. so there's you know significant benefits there. There's also an intriguing new evidence from a from a small experiment in Vancouver that gave a lump sum of seventy five hundred dollars to fifty people that had um, uh, entered into. Um, a come homeless in the last two years. And the results suggest that those who, um, the people that received cash transfers moved into stable housing further mm-hmm. and were able to to accumulate some savings, um, you know, and uh, and sort of one year out were, um, you know, had much more financial security. But again, that was a very small sample. And I, and I hope that we're going to um, replicate, researchers will replicate those findings. I think right. it's a really important question
2: sounds like there's good opportunities here to dig more yeah. into this uh to yes. try to compare the effectiveness yeah. i mean you know the key issue here is to have an unrestricted cash right which means that people get to use it whichever way they see most as being most effective versus this you know specific. Housing voucher, you know, does it make a difference, certainly in terms of housing outcomes, since this is what we're focusing on, on right now? You know, it's yep. definitely it would be an interesting uh, question to think about. Yep. Um, so back to housing vouchers themselves, we talked mm-hmm. about how they uh, significantly decrease homelessness and mm-hmm. uh, the burden of rents in households budgets. Uh, So do they have implications for maybe other social outcomes, including perhaps education, perhaps kids are able to access better schools Mm -hmm. thanks to these vouchers. So what do we know about Mm -hmm. that?
0: Yeah, there is evidence that there's improved outcomes beyond housing as well. And I I mean, I recently published a study with with, um, co-authors that uh, showed that that low-income children in New York City whose families received vouchers um, did significantly better on standardized tests than, than, you know, other similar families who also applied for vouchers, but didn't receive them until, until later. And so, and, and there's strong evidence. I mean, that's a, that's a short-term study. And you could say, oh, that's just test scores. Um, but there's strong evidence that these sort of translate into longer term impacts. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, you um, maybe most notably the, you know, the moving to opportunity demonstration found that young children whose families received unrestricted vouchers um, through the experiment saw a 15% boost to income in their, in their mid twenties. And um, so I think there is, there's significant evidence that vouchers and particularly, um, I think the evidence is strongest on the, 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 the benefits to children. Right. Right. The, the, the evidence, honestly, the evidence on sort of adults is a little bit more mixed. Um, you know, that there is um, some evidence that adults receiving vouchers are, are less likely to to work, um, see um, reductions in in um, in earnings. But uh, but I think that the evidence is, is very strong for benefits for for children. Especially as right. they grow I, over the longer term. In the
2: case of moving to opportunity, if I remember correctly, there just were no effects on adults' yeah, there were no uh, effects. Uh, earnings and employment. So yeah, they, that was they, a motivation they, for doing it. That's but then exactly There right. was a null result.
0: Yeah, they did uh, find interesting, in, in, um, you know, benefits for health, though so adult right. health,
2: which, uh, was, which was not, mental not Yeah,
0: mental, mental health, health and because, obesity, yeah. diabetes. Right. I mean, so right. and that was something unexpected. So
2: that's yeah that, that's definitely interesting but you know one of the key things there is that it allowed people to move to safer neighborhoods yeah. and that that's had right. uh, apparently a, an important impact on on their mental yeah. health level of stress and so on and so forth that's right. so you know these vouchers seem great right so they, they they help people afford rent they have good out you know influence on kids outcomes but you know, uh, one of the key problems of the program is that families typically wait for years to receive a voucher. They stay there on a waiting list. And so overall, only one in four households who's eligible for a voucher nationally ends up receiving it. And for example, in Philadelphia, there's a long wait list for pub- public housing as well. And it's been closed since 2013 because they just don't have enough spots. So what leads to the long wait list, uh, you know, in vouchers and or public housing? Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, this is really a political question, right? The program only has the funding to house uh, a small set of the eligible households, So it's sort of by design. Um Mm-hmm. and and so you know the demand far exceeds the supply especially in in tight housing markets and and um the wait lists are notoriously long a lot of housing authorities you said like philadelphia just closed down their wait lists and then they only open them for like two weeks every 10 years and you have to apply it exactly in, in that window and if anything, this has worsened over time. So federal appropriations for housing assistance, you know, dropped dramatically during the 1980s, and they kind of haven't, they've just never caught up. And, and I mean, even in the years since like in the 90s and the 2000s, um, really through, I mean, I think I looked through like 2015 or something that, um, you know, the number of low income households grew about twice as fast as the number of low income households receiving um, federal rental assistance. Um, right. So, so
2: one obstacle is we need more funding, but assuming yeah. for now that it's a fixed budget, are there any ways to make this waiting process a little bit more effective? Since, for example, in Philadelphia right now, if you need public housing, well, too bad. The wait list is closed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I should say, let me just back up one other thing. It's that another issue is like if, if we relaxed land use regulations and allowed more housing to be built, right, mm. that that probably would reduce rents across the board and it would, you know, open up more opportunities for voucher holders. But but let me let me address the rate the wait list question in particular. Um and uh you know it, it's 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 a real it's a real challenge and a real problem. And and just to, to sort of underscore this, right? The wait list, these um lengthy wait lists mean that that young children um you know miss the crucial window for when um, getting a voucher when it could actually have the greatest impact on them i I think it's also true that we sort of have this first come first serve you know notion that that those who have been on the waitlist for longer are the neediest but that, that's not necessarily clear right and Mm -hmm. and there's also a big efficiency issue so what you have is you have these you know waitlist what did you say in philadelphia it was 2013 so now if the philadelphia housing authority if they have a voucher that opens up they have to reach people who they last they have their contact information most recent contact information is from 2013 so it takes almost 10 years ago right (laughs) and so they can't find households so so Mm -hmm. i think you know, I think one possibility is for PHAs to move away from waiting lists to sort of annual lottery systems, which I think could really solve some of those issues. Um, And, uh, but, you know, I, I think that more broadly, this is an area that's sort of ripe for experimentation and innovation.
2: Right. It sounds like there might be a better mechanism, just like we have school choice you know yeah. uh, mechanisms where we try to assign students to the right school and there's research yeah. in economics on that we yeah. might be able to do better uh, for this assignment of vouchers uh, as well Absolutely. so you know another issue is that even when you get the voucher oh, oh my yeah. god then you might not be able to use it in fact yeah. the significant share of households who do get the house the voucher this precious voucher that so few people get then they can't use it so why is that
0: yeah, it it is. It's devastating, right? You have these households that have been on the wait list say from twenty thirteen in Philadelphia, they get a voucher, and you know the the latest published study in it was published in in two thousand or t- two thousand and one, found that thirty percent thirty percent of voucher holders, uh, voucher recipients across the country, didn't actually weren't able to to use their voucher to rent a unit, um, and we're actually I'm actually in the midst of updating those. Numbers with some colleagues at um, at the Furman Center at NYU, and we're actually finding that that um, take up has fallen. So that now we find that nearly 40% of households who receive a voucher don't actually, um, you know, ultimately use them. And you know, in some sense, I mean that reduction in in take up might be expected given the growing affordability ch- challenges. But um, like I said, it's it's pretty devastating, and I think. Some of the issue is the small number of private market homes that rent below the payment standard. Discrimination mm. is also, I think, um, you know, uh, a, a really um, significant issue. Um, and what do you uh, mean with
2: discrimination? Can you explain? Yeah, that there's
0: there are there, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of landlords around the country who just simply refuse to to house people who are using vouchers to pay for part of their rent, um, mm-hmm. and. Look, I mean, you know, part of that is that um, program rules, the the housing quality inspection requirements make leasing more difficult for tenants and, and landlords. And, and um, so, you know, I think we also, it's also the onus is on policymakers to kind of make sure the voucher program is as easy as possible to, to use. But, um, and I think doing, you know, research shows that landlord outreach can, can make a difference. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, we're in the midst of the study trying to figure out what, why are there some areas where success rates are higher? There are a number of place, states, and localities that have enacted source of income protection laws, which, which make it um, illegal to, to refuse to house um, somebody, Mm -hmm. regardless of know what the source of their income is regardless of whether they're Mm -hmm. using vouchers but but the evidence suggests even in even in the places that have enacted those laws they're not very well enforced
2: and well it would be difficult to enforce it would be difficult multiple applicants to you know a a rental unit you know the landlord of course can pick whoever they want so yeah yeah (laughs) that's Uh, that's
0: exactly right and so you see basically what do you see it's sort of in the tighter markets and the higher income sort of higher rent areas that um, in, um you know strong markets landlords are even less um apt to to accept vouchers
2: right so you know the, so again some people manage to use the vouchers and that might have an indirect effect on those who are still you know don't have an, a voucher yeah. don't have you know an ability to get help so is there any Evidence that maybe using these vouchers increases rent because it seems like we're giving people yeah. more money to be able to spend on housing, and then that might, in some cases, allow landlords to charge more because there's more people willing to pay more for housing. Yeah, yeah. So
0: it's a you know it's a little bit of a it's a, it's a tricky problem to measure. I I think it is you know it's it's potentially a concern. I, I think that that um you know. One study done in the 1990s, I guess, did find some evidence that sort of that vouchers um, did increase rents for sort of other low income households that um, that were not able to receive those vouchers. Um, More recent work suggests that, you know, doesn't find a lot of evidence for those um, for those sort of spillover effects Mm -hmm. in the market, although to the extent you're going to see them you're going to see them at those at the units that rent just about at the payment standard and it, um, mm-hmm. that at that sort of ceiling rent and I, and I think you know you do see also you know a little more anecdotally you see um, evidence that particularly in in low rent markets that landlords you know they're they're much more. Um, willing and interested in, in taking vouchers because in, in as as we talked about, the fact that the that you get the same rent payment regardless of, of what neighborhood you are in in a metropolitan area means that the voucher is, is much more profitable. It's very generous mm-hmm. in a lot of in a lot of low rent neighborhoods. So I think um, you know, there is some suggestive evidence that in, in low income neighborhoods, um and, and low rent neighborhoods that, right. that um, yeah. landlords charge voucher holders higher rent. So
2: basically, what that means is that it's kind of discrimination the other direction. If it's a really low rent neighborhood, and yeah. the landlord gets gets to be paid the average rent uh, of the you know city, the landlord is like, yeah, okay. I want a housing voucher person yeah. in there. They're gonna pay me more, and that can potentially take the seat or the, the house for somebody who doesn't have a voucher. So it's kind of the, the opposite uh, sort of mechanism. And of course, that's going to depend on housing, you know, yeah. responsiveness. So you were mentioning yeah. earlier land use regulations. If we can build a lot more housing, that will be far less of an issue because that's, there's that's enough exactly housing to right? Get, so the go places where you would expect
0: right? to see these kind of rent effects that would be in sort of tighter markets where the housing supply kind of can't easily expand,
2: Um Right. So back to the, you know, uh, uh housing mm-hmm. vouchers, like the overall effectiveness. So we've talked about some of the mm-hmm. positive effects, some of the limits, but still there's a lot of positive effects. So if we look at the policy all in all, how much does it cost? And is it overall worth the investment in other terms? All these positive effects, are they worth the taxpayer? Yeah. <laughs> putting their so, money. Into you know, I mean, it,
0: it, the, the, the voucher program costs about $20 billion, um, Per year, and um, you know, as, as I said, I think that these these programs are. The evidence suggests that they're more cost effective than than um, than uh, supply side programs, or that, that that build that in which sort of government funds construction directly. Um, you know, I I think that it's um, you know, in my view, I think that the the research suggests that given these. Um, pretty, you know, I mean, significant benefits in terms of enhancing affordability, reducing homelessness, which obviously has an enormous, not only cost to individuals, but it but imposes a social cost. The, the benefits in terms of economic mobility over the longer run, um, I think that uh, in, in my mind, the program is well worth the cost. You know, that's not to say that there aren't reforms, that, that there are not ways that we can improve it to make it, to make it work better.
2: Sure, and we've talked about wait lists, for example. But you know, in thinking about yeah. expanding the program, if if it's so great, then we should have more of it, right? since it's it's a worthwhile program. So uh, you know is, would you do you think that that's the case yeah. and, and if so, why isn't it done? politically? Yeah. So,
0: I mean, I think that that's sort of a that is a, um, a a political question. So in some ways, you know you should consult the political scientist for for a more rigorous answer. but, um, but but I do think that um, I, I, you know, that I, I think it's sort of more if you, if you look at back at the, you know, the last presidential campaign in, in 2020, virtually all the Democratic candidates have had voucher expansion on their um on their uh, in their policy platform. So you know, I do think that there is interest. I think Congress generally is much more supportive of expansions to vouchers than to public housing. They're much more fond of vouchers than public housing. It attracts more bipartisan attention. Mm-hmm. I will say that um, one way to maybe think about this is is to say, um, if we were to expand the voucher program that we really should be, focusing on the most economically vulnerable households that we should think about sort of expanding, um, the, these, um, you know, what, what is a a pretty generous subsidy to the, the lowest income, you know, sort of extremely low income households, those households I talked about that earn less than 30% of the area median income. And then think about introducing something that Mm is, um, more of a, um, a short-term um, emergency rental assistance supports for somewhat higher income households, That, um, mm-hmm. which I think that program could be um, more politically and fiscally mm-hmm. feasible than, than um, universal vouchers. It could have a really big impact on reducing um, homelessness and housing instability for households, like I said, that are sort of slightly higher. They're still low income, but slightly higher income.
2: Higher income. So you talked about uh, expanding it for the lowest income households, but you told me that most of the current beneficiaries are the lowest income households already. Yeah. So how would you expand it even more? Or, you know, what is the practical step there? Or do you mean that we should lower the sort of income cap uh, for, for so that yeah, you we are still better have a targeted? Of,
0: I mean, you know, there's still a, a very large number. I mean, three to four million um, extremely low-income households that are not receiving federal rental assistance. So there's mm-hmm. there's lots of room for expansion, even within, even you know, um, even even if you sort of uh, if you lower the the income threshold,
2: right, the income right. eligibility that- threshold. That makes sense. So it would seem like if you wanted to be budget conscious, you might want to lower the eligibility uh, threshold, maybe do an information push and help for people to to, to apply and then have a different yeah. program that's more temporary for that's higher, right. sort of a, slightly exactly higher income households. A
0: shallower, time-limited subsidy that had broader, with broader eligibility. Um, and, um, you know, and then you, you wouldn't, I mean... You know, you wouldn't have much as much concern about potential um, inflationary effects of the um, of the housing vouchers, um, you know, and uh, and I think you would be meeting. I I think it's also there are also a lot of households, again, that that they don't they can afford they may be able to sort of afford their their homes on average, their rents on average. But they do face income volatility. And right Mm -hmm. now we have no program. To, to address to that. that, to address that kind of volatility, our housing programs and the again, I think the housing choice voucher program is a wonderful program, but it's really aimed to address kind of more um, long-term housing needs, affordability needs, and not the short-term shocks.
2: So, if you had to recommend policymakers that they consider a next step, you know, what would be in your view, based on your research, the best next? step to take as far as the design of these uh, housing vouchers or a reform, a policy reform uh, about them?
0: Yeah, so let me sort of put that into two buckets. I mean, one is that um, I I think, like I said, I think there are a bunch of, as we think about voucher expansion, I think that should be accompanied by some significant reforms. Um, I think... uh, Thinking about moving to um, measuring the, you know, these fair market rents or the payment standards at a lower level of geography. So you're not basically steering voucher holders into the lowest rent neighborhoods and restricting their choice um, is, I I think, would be a big one. I think kind of. I think that. Uh, so sorry
2: to play the devil's advocate, but when you yeah. say that, it goes against the idea of like expansion a bit because that would make the program more expensive, yeah, right? Yeah, it so. actually.
0: You know, the research suggests <laughs> that it doesn't make it more expensive necessarily because because of the 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 issue that we talked about before that right now in the lowest rent um, neighborhoods. Um, the landlords seem to be charging kind of. A oh, they're overpaid. Of the landlords yeah, are getting so unquote get overpaid. Passed. Yeah, they're so they would reduce the rents to the landlords in the low income, uh, the low rent neighborhoods, and you would increase the the rent subsidies to those in high income neighborhoods. And so the get best it. research on this shows that it's actually sort of fiscally neutral. So mm, kind of a fascinating a note. A no-brainer. So, so I think that, and then I, like I said, I think for if if I kind of incorporate political feasibility into my wish list too, I, I do think this sort of this universal emergency rental assistance um, program would really be would be near the top of the list. Um, and uh, again, I I think it could have a huge impact on on reducing homelessness and 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 housing instability. And and I think you know, so much stems from that to get back to to where we started that. That a safe and stable home in a in a you know diverse neighborhood promotes health that unlocks economic mobility and and um, can start to undo some of the some of the harms of racial and economic segregation.
2: I think this is a great place to start. Thank you so much, Ingrid.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Great to talk to you.
1: Ioana, what struck you about that conversation you had with Ingrid? So, you know, one of the things that struck
2: me the most is that housing vouchers really do help with housing insecurity. They reduce homelessness, but yet we just don't have enough budget for everybody to access those vouchers who is eligible. So people might qualify for the program, but there's not enough budget. So a lot of people who are eligible don't qualify, and then even among those people who get those vouchers, 40% of them end up not being able to use them. So it's a great program that's really helpful, but it still also has you know, limitations and ways that it could be made better uh, to serve people's
1: housing needs. I think there are some nonprofits we can talk about in a moment that can help with that. But one of the concepts that came up that I'd, I'd love you to explain a little bit more is this notion of um, some a policy that is fiscally neutral. Or what exactly does that refer to? Right.
2: So, you know, we discussed that with Ingrid, but this is a pretty technical point that I think is worth explaining here. So, you know, I just explained that Housing vouchers, there's just not enough budget for it. So therefore, people who should be able to get it don't get it. So one of the things you might want to do is to expand the budget. Uh, But that can be hard to do for a host of reasons, including political reasons. It can be difficult to make people agree to spend more on this because that might involve spending less on other things or maybe having to raise taxes. So that can be a hairy discussion to have. So therefore, when we talk about fiscally neutral, we mean that we could make, we could change this program in a way that the budget stays the same. We're not going to spend more money. We spend the same amount of money, but we're just going to change the program. And one of the things that uh, Ingrid was suggesting that could be really helpful is this idea of, um, you know, the vouchers are tied to the price of rentals in different areas uh, in the city. And so if it's tied to the overall price in the whole city, that would be a fairly high rent relative to the sorts of units that are in the lowest income neighborhood. And actually in that sense, the landlords in low income neighborhoods are being overpaid by the voucher, which pays, you know, at a level that is more appropriate for the whole city. So I therefore see. what Ingrid was proposing was to allow more geographically detailed, like neighborhood by neighborhood, know price assessment so that the vouchers that you know if you go into a lower rent neighborhood the vouchers cover the kind of rent that is typical in that neighborhood and if you go in a higher rent neighborhood you know they cover what's typical in that neighborhood and you know studies have shown that if you did this more precise targeting to different neighborhoods it wouldn't cost more Uh, but instead you'd actually manage to get more vouchers essentially because right now landlords who are in low rent neighborhood are sometimes getting reimbursed, if you will, at a higher level through these vouchers than what would be the normal rent in those neighborhoods. So this, with this reform, you can therefore serve more people with the budget that you have.
1: Interesting. So that it's it's sort of the policy version of something that we talk a lot about when we describe what high impact philanthropy is, like it's a practice. And one of the elements of high impact philanthropy is always thinking, how can we do more good with whatever resources we have? Because people exactly. start getting nervous. Oh, I, I guess in order to do more good, we have to spend more money and it's just bigger, bigger, bigger. But sometimes if you just look at what you're doing and think about smart ways to adapt it and maybe think about those local differences. Like you just said, it it can be as you said, fiscally neutral, or it can be the same amount of money, but you get more impact from it. Exactly. Um, Well, uh, you know, I I said earlier that um, some of the limitations of housing vouchers, um, like uh, folks um, not being Being eligible but not not being able to access the housing, or in in some cases, you know, maybe not being eligible because of certain policy conditions that are are put on that. That's it's exactly those gaps in policy that nonprofits and philanthropy are often really well positioned to fill. So, you know, I'm I'm thinking about. nonprofit organizations that, um, advocate for fair housing that serve as kind of navigators within communities to link people, um, who are eligible, uh, for those benefits to those benefits. And then also to, um, uh, landlords and, um, and other, uh, people who have housing and, and maybe just aren't aware of, um, of how this works. Um, and, you know, I'm also thinking of nonprofits like Pathways to Housing, because there, there are some individuals who, um, because of the way policies are drawn or because of who they are, can have an extremely hard time getting housing. So people, mm-hmm. for example, who are still struggling with um, substance abuse disorders. Mm-hmm. And nonprofits like Pathways for Housing really have been pioneers in an evidence-based strategy called Housing First, where you think, right. first, let's but before they are fully you know recovered from a substance use disorder it's it's actually really hard to recover if you don't have stable housing
2: That's right. You know, so if you have to live in the streets and are struggling with addiction, that doesn't make it any easier for you to take care of yourself.
1: Exactly. So, you know, we've got policies like um, vouchers, housing vouchers. We've got new evidence that shows us how to improve those policies. And then we've got nonprofit organizations like Pathways to Housing that um, are implementing housing first um, so that Those people who might have the most difficulty finding secure housing are still able to, and that's often actually the first step, not the last step in their being able to um, recover and be independent and, and thrive the way we want everyone to thrive.
2: Right. I think this really demonstrates how, you know, there's such complementarity between public policy with things like housing vouchers and the actions of nonprofits that can complement that and, you know, uh, plug in some holes and also sometimes serve as models for reforms in the policy
1: itself. So I think that's really all fascinating. Exactly. Well, and and that's why it's the two of us having these conversations. Hopefully together we can identify both the policy and the nonprofit ways um, that we can improve things. Terrific. Thanks, Kat. Thank you, Joanna.
2: Until next time.